Johnson, Jan Jan Jammerin, Yabba Yabba Ding Ding, Delta Hay, Max Nine. Welcome to Fuds on Film. <laughs> I'm Drew. I'm joined today, unfortunately for him, by Scott. Hello. And this is our intermission episode for July 2020. 20, 20, <laughs> oh, God. It's been a long year. It's not July 20, 2020, 21. It's just 2021. <laughs> I hope and think. Um, yeah, uh, as usual. As usual for this slot, it's just the stuff that we've happened to see. And, well, let's start off with what is... I was going to say it's the biggest film um, we're going to cover. It's actually not. Um, hmm. We'll get to that one. But, uh, yes, there's there's the, the lady and she goes, you know, kick, punch, it's all in the mind. If you want to test me, we're sure you'll find. The things we'll teach you is sure to beat you. But nevertheless, you'll get a lesson from Scott now. Come on now, why don't you follow Scott's words? Because we're far from done. He'll make it easy at first. I want to see if you want to see what it means. Do we the marvel with the master plan? Do they have a plan now? It's a tortured Parappa the Rapper <laughs> reference there. Uh, for yes, for all the younger listeners, that was a game on the PlayStation, which came out in, I think it was 1871. Uh, it was actually 1869 originally in Japan, Scott. It didn't right. make it to the West until 1871, yes. Yeah, well, the, the PAL conversion took a while back in those days, didn't it? Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> it's one of those things... See if that amuses only me. This is worth it. I'm honestly happy with that. And it seems like it amused you a bit, at least. So yeah. I'll do. Um, I was like, uh, it, for some reason, it slipped into my head while watching this because um, it was like, because it was kicking and punching. And, <laughs> and it was all it wasn't my attention all that well. And like, so <laughs> I started to think about Parappa because yes. that's how I do. Yes. But yes. Do they have a plan, Scott? We are talking, if we've not mentioned it, about Black Widow. <laughs> it may have been buried in there somewhere. Uh, it's not actually an adaptation no. of Parappa the Rapper. That's what you mentioned. You <laughs> <laughs> should have kept a, a, like, kept going without mentioning it to see how long it's going to take to anybody clocked. <laughs> yes, well, this is uh, finally an answer to the question that's been on everyone's lips. Just what did Scarlett Johansson's Natasha Black Widow Romanoff get up to in between Captain America Civil War and whatever the next one was, probably an Avengers film? A question that I presume someone must have had. Maybe? No? Yes, I, I me neither. It was, it was a question that should have been asked. Yes. Um, not once did that occur to me that that was a question that had the possibility of being asked, but yes. we have the film anyway, so aren't we lucky? Yes, definitely something I was happy to assume. But anyway, uh, here we are. Uh, more precisely, in 2016 we are, after a flashback to 1995, where a young Natasha is part of a deep cover unit with David Harbour's Alexei Shoskakov, uh, Rachel Weisz's Melina Voskov, and once she's grown up... Uh, Florence Pugh's Yelena Belova, where they are shown having the appearance and perhaps more of a family unit until they are activated and have to leave in a hurry. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. in pursuit, back to Russia. The unit is disbanded and the kiddywinks head off to Ray Winston's General Drakoff's shady Red Room facility. Now, back in more modern times, and Romanov is busy running from S.H.I.E.L.D., escaping to Norway, where she finds that she's been mailed some vials of megafinium. And the (laughs) Taskmaster, who initially seems like a kung fu robot, is hot on the trail. Um, After escaping, she globetrots off to Budapest, reuniting there with her sister, Belova, and after a bit of defecting-based tension, the two reunite in a bid to take down the Red Room once and for all, aided by the megafinium, which it turns out is an antidote to the mind-control techniques that General Drakoff has been using to control his army of Black Widow operatives, who of course are all now sixed on Belova and Romanov, so they're going to need a little help from their family to complete their mission. 
Now, before I get too far into the weeds with Black Widow, I should say that it passed the time well enough, and it's a dependably marvellous instalment in their universe. So, if you just want the short form of this, if you have any tolerance left for Marvel films, fill your boots. However, uh, after not all that much thought about it, I'm left mainly feeling with a feeling of wasted opportunity and wasted potential from this film. There's a good number of ideas and elements here that I like, but the one thing that stops it being all that it could be is that damnable Marvel label, and there's now surely the ultimate disapproval of the idea that this is a masterstroke, that all these films have the same tone no matter what the subject matter is. Now, taking any ideas from DC is obviously dangerous, but <laughs> it, it would not hurt to have one film in this interminable parade of them be a little dark and gritty with a bit of a sharp edge, would it? And wouldn't it be this film that screams out for it? A film where now everyone is a mass-murdering assassin or the head of a brainwashing programme that makes mass-murdering assassins? Shouldn't one of these films maybe explore the whole mass-murder thing just a little? It's surely a better venue for a discussion on the morality and necessity of, uh, necessity of killing than Man of Steel was right and to be fair there's moments where it's edging towards that before hastily backing away and cutting to david harbour gurning with a comedy russian accent which to be clear is wonderful but not the tone (laughs) that this film needs to join up its actions and its emotions and a lot of this uh, particularly early on plays like marvel's born identity and is much more interesting for it but it just cannot help getting the same marvel standard paint job so the same film where someone's trying to come to terms with the bombing of innocent children the same characters also descending from a crashing space station by jumping down bits of falling debris like some cut-rate Sonic the Hedgehog cutscene. Uh, this is definitely an instance where they should not have gone big, but instead quite literally have gone home. For all the rest that Black Widow does, right or wrong, my abiding memory of this film will be ultimate confirmation that the Marvel Universe will not tolerate any deviation from the norm, even when the story badly needs it, and expecting any growth or change in it would be as futile as expecting any better from the Fast and the Furious. I give up. No bass. Well, maybe the next Thor film, if Cork's in it. Marvel film out of ten. Yeah, it's like the whole Marvel franchise is on mood stabilisers, isn't it? There's there's no peaks, but there's no troughs either. Yeah. Um, Unless you're like an emotional cripple, because all the, again, I, and I don't care if you're upset by this, but the people who was at the end of Infinity War saying, "Oh, I'm so sad about all these," you, you knew it wasn't going to stick. None yeah. of that matters. And like how you know that they're just going to undo everything. Like, why would you care? Yeah, this film. No, I apart from the start, which I mean, had me worried for two reasons. One is it, it's picking up from where um, Civil War finished, you know, and not only did I, did I not care, I didn't care to be reminded of Civil War, which is terrible. Yes. Uh, I sadly didn't care what happened to the person who changed allegiances at the end of Civil War for some reason, yes. anyway. Um, <laughs> reasons of... She was convinced by all um, the arguments that were taking place off camera, I guess. I was convinced by all the arguments that weren't, yeah. Yes. Um, she was convinced by the tremendously exciting setting too of the garages around the back of an airport <laughs> um yeah so apart from that and also the this abominable cover of smells like teen spirit by nirvana mm. um which ought to be some sort of war crime <laughs> and i'm hoping the guilty party will be brought to justice soon because that was terrible apart from that though the some of the star was quite promising the the flight from the shield agents at the start mm-hmm. was quite unmarvel-like action and i was there for it yeah it was it was low-key obviously there was a lot of cgi and green screen work but it felt like almost like some of it could have been real was mm-hmm. the sort of thing 
had David Harbour been Tom Cruise, that'd have been real. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was that it was that sort of level. It was like it was more believable. It was something you would see in a yeah, a Mission Impossible film, uh, maybe even be a kind of lesser level stunt in a, a Christopher Nolan film or something like that. Yeah. Really good start. And then by the end, magic flying space castles crashing out of the sky because, mm. yes, why not? Yeah, I need a secret facility. What I'm going to use for the secret facility that no one will be able to see, space station. Okay, because we don't have telescopes. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that. also, that's one of my problems too is the Marvel films, there's no, there's no restraint. Hmm. There's no apparent restriction what anybody can do. So it doesn't make anything interesting. There's never anybody needing to come up with some clever plan to defeat something. It's like everybody's always got everything. Uh, and at the end of Black um, Panther, which is, to be clear, considerably worse than this. So, you know, that's good. Like Wakanda is like, oh, we're the most advanced nation in the world and stuff. And then by the next film, it didn't matter because Tony Stark at that point had actual magic. Yeah. And then there was a magic man who had the actual, actual magic. Um, mm-hmm. So kind of, and so this film suffers from that a wee bit. It's like there's this perfect mind control run through an iPad, apparently, mm-hmm. and and why? Because that's what comics do. It's like they write anything they can think of, and they don't no um, notion of how any of it works. And the fact that everybody always seems to have everything anyway, none of it matters. And, mm-hmm. and you'll see what I'm doing now is what exactly I try to avoid doing with Marvel, and it's the enemy of all Marvel films. I thought about it. Yeah. And while I watched this, I got out of the cinema and I thought, you know what, that was fine. I had problems with mm. it watching it, it was fine. And then I started thinking about it and preparing for this, I was thinking about it more and it <laughs> all falls apart, like all those films do. Yeah. And, you know, like, not thinking about it is not actually the solution because if it was better, you wouldn't have to have that problem. Yeah. And it's it's frustrating because there are moments there that are potentially really promising. Uh, you mean the mood thing, Scott, um, is the thing. Some of the points you mentioned. There are moments here, um, and I, I was quite amused. I saw just before I saw this. Um, coincidentally, there was a one of those honest trailers, which are generally less mean spirited than something like Cinema Sins or something. Mm. Um, uh, an honest trailers about like the Marvel films and it was actually because it, it collected all the stuff together of, of the last like 12 years or whatever this one thing and like this trend that goes through of like that pretty much every single emotional beat is instantly undercut by comedy or something because yeah. they can't commit to anything nothing's meaningful yeah this film actually probably 50% of the time restrains itself from that and I was <laughs> really genuinely very pleased when the group all trundle off and they meet Rachel Vice and Florence Pugh and David Harbour having this conversation and I kept expecting it to be undercut. Yeah. Like the <laughs> emotional bits at the end of Guys of the Galaxy are undercut and it's been in almost all the other films apart of, probably apart from Tony Stark's funeral. It was the only time that it's not happened. Um and that's probably only because Tony Stark wasn't alive had he been <laughs> yeah. not like in a metaphysical way of it being his own funeral, but like, <laughs> like that Carter would have probably yeah. said something stupid because he couldn't handle emotions. But yeah, they have these emotional scenes and she's saying you were like everything to me and and it's like, I kept waiting for it to drop. I kept waiting for the undercuts. Like, oh, it didn't happen. They let that play out. And then then the action scene happened from outside. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> they are capable of it. Look at that. They're, they're allowing emotions to happen in the film. Um, and again, it's only 50% of the time, but it's better than it never happening. Yeah. Yeah. 
the problems are, oh, it's the fact that it just ramps up to really dull and not vaguely interesting CGI set pieces at the end when like the interesting bits was this, the lower key character moments yeah there, there's got um, to be a first draft of this somewhere there's a very personal revenge story on the basis that you know um, perhaps slight spoilers but um, yeah the, the Russian general um <laughs> Another comedy accent, Ray Winston's general. You know, it was his kid that was killed. He wants revenge on Romanov. Romanov's still trying to get revenge for all the people. You know, the, the, there's lots of interplay that you can get there and lots of drama you could mine for it. I'm sure that Scarlett Johansson would have been very happy to get into that stuff because she kind of hints at it in places when she kind of remembers what's happened with the, the, the events of her past. And if that was just small and was left to being a climax of just people punching each other in a room with a fixed camera and not bouncing down the side of a satellite, it would be much better. You don't need to go big all the time. I thought they might have learned this, Disney might have learned this lesson when, after failing with all the, the Star Wars stuff, the, the kind of smaller scale stuff in The Mandalorian is the only one that people seem to actually like. I thought mm. they might have been about ready to do the same kind of thing with their, their, their tentpole franchises, but apparently not. They've just got to have the big finish they've got to have the spectacle of it and really it's, the, it's by far and away the least interesting part of this film <laughs> yeah i mean it, it generally is anyway yeah um, but it's because in this more than any other films it's sort of place too because yeah. scarlett johansson despite falling down buildings and not having it more than a tiny scratch on her back or something yes not actually a god isn't a superhero <laughs> She's not Captain America. She's not the Hulk. She's not even Tony Stark with his magic armor. Mm-hmm. She's a woman. She's a regular human. She's well trained and skillful. Okay, she's a person. Yeah. <laughs> she can't do all these things, but they have to do them anyway because you know that's what they do. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and it's really frustrating because if there's any film that can would sustain us, it would make sense, and that you quite reasonably wouldn't expect all of the the big set pieces. It's mm. this one. But no, they're in there anyway. And there's other moments to like part of and certainly up to the end of Endgame where it did feel like there was a through line. Even when some of like the crossover bit seemed a bit forced. There was a through line. It seemed like they had a plan and a destination. Mm-hmm. Now that they've got there, it's kind of like the uh uh we've finished it, what do we do now? Well we can't actually finish it, so mm-hmm. we'll just stick some other stuff out. But well, those seem connected. I was sort of, was sort of glad that the the film isn't as tied into the other MCU stuff as those other films had been. Sometimes necessarily so. Mm-hmm. So that was good. But at the same point, when they didn't do that, it's like, well, how is this a Marvel film other than the fact that it's got this incredibly dull tone all the way through it? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's like, well, what's the point of this film? Because that character's dead. She didn't actually get much chance to do anything interesting before that anyway. Bits and pieces. Yeah. Here and there. She was never like a... I mean, partly because of Scarlett Johansson. She was a really likeable character. She kind of, as part of a, a group of people, she was quite an important part of that group and she could interact with the different people and things like that. But as an actual character that you saw, you don't yeah. see a lot of her. And it's not no. very interesting. Yeah. Uh, but there are bits that are hinted about that are really interesting. Like... Apparently, her way into Shield. Although they keep saying that she left the the, the employee of Dre Winston to to join to become an Avenger, which wasn't a thing yet. So, <laughs> I'm not sure how that works. But okay, um, but yeah. So her way into Shield was to to kill this little girl, and like 
And uh, she's our sister's always teasing her about, oh no, you're like, oh, but you had to kill this little girl. But yeah, but how many people have just died in that car crash or that car chase of the street you've both just been in? Yes. Do, th- do those people not count the, the, the several dozen people you must have killed? <laughs> Inadvertently as it may be, but um, in this car chase in the middle of a busy European city. Like, mm. So it's, just the, there's no joined up thinking goes on in a lot of these films. Yeah. And yeah, I think my biggest issue with the film is one of tone because yeah, you have those smaller moments and they don't work. But there's hints of something interesting there. And the, small, the lower key moment they start, and then by the end of it, massive CGI battles. And then then for some reason, they have the sort of touchy moments that are suggesting like these, ch- these girls were effectively kidnapped, forced to be these assassins. But then they're making jokes about the forced sterilisation, mm. which is, you know, forever a source of humour. Uh, it's like really awkward tone in there. Yeah. Yeah. And also... <laughs> It's weird. The film's meant to be about Scarlett Johansson's character and, well, her family. Um, <laughs> family. It's a word I currently hate with a passion um, for reasons we'll soon get to. <laughs> but it's... I don't know, it's not... It kind of diminishes the character because it's all these other films like, oh, you're the famous Black Widow and it turns out, oh no, there are dozens of them. Yeah. <laughs> so she's not the famous Black Widow, she's just a Black Widow and she's it kind of diminishes that character, which is not what they intended, I'm sure, but it does. Yeah. These Black Widows, incidentally, who, again, apparently through the medium of an iPad, Ray Winston can click a button and and make economies collapse and things and governments fall because he has them in different places. But, but how? No, no, you've not to ask that. Yes. You know, but how? <laughs> mm, quick, look over there, something shiny. <laughs> Talking of Ray Winston, he's terrible in this, but I don't think that's Ray Winston's... Um, it's like apart from Thanos, there's never been an interesting villain in the MCU. No, not one. <laughs> and what again? What was interesting about Thanos, apart from like the charisma that Josh Brolin brought to the role, and unlike the comic books where he's trying to impress a woman because mm. comic books are stupid, uh, <laughs> he believed, insane as, he, as it was, that he was doing something good. He was doing the right thing. But what does Faye Winston's character want? Well, that's power. Mm. What does like Ronan want in the Guardians of the Galaxy? Power. <laughs> He was like suggested he's a fanatic, but no, he just wanted power. Everybody's really dull, yeah. uh, and so Ray Winston's here, and he's really, really dull, but also vaguely magic because of pheromones. <laughs> yeah, I did think about this, and it's, it's bad. Yeah, I'd happily watch a film that was just David Harbour. Let's get him back and give him a, a run. Let's give him a Netflix series of the the Red Defender in his uh, glory yeah. days. I'd, I'd happily watch that. He's funny. Yeah, David Harbour. But again, though, I mean, David Harbour's got the range there that he could do those touching moments too. He, he mm. kind of looks sort of discomforted and stuff, and like, oh, I've been a complete pillock. Yeah, but it, it did work, and, and he can do that transition. Yeah, too, because he just looks so goofy. It still fits the stuff when he's in his um, his suit, and he's got the beer belly coming out and stuff. Yeah, uh, but yeah, his character's really good, and probably the best thing about the film. And I don't want to be too negative about it, but. It's just, and one of the things while I was watching it though that bothered me is that the the back and forth between Florence Pugh and Scarlett Johansson felt forced. Certainly kind of lacking in energy. There wasn't really any good chemistry between them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if it's the lines they were being asked to deliver that made it bad or that their bad delivery made the lines seem bad, but there was just like lines that 
could be like very, very mildly amusing. Um, and sort of like you get in that situation about like, oh, you, you missed the thing and kind of slight teasing. Yeah. It was just delivered so flatly. Yeah. Um, that they just, so they fell flat. Weirdly, they're both much better on their own. Uh, uh, they're kind of little yeah. moments when they're acting against nobody that worked much better, um, which yeah. is strange. Maybe they didn't get on. I mean, it, it yeah. happens. You, you can't expect every human to like every other human. So maybe yeah. it simply was, like, there was a lack of chemistry between them because that's how it feels. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah, there's, there are moments like Florence Pugh has that moment because she's kind of been ribbing Scarlett Johansson earlier about her pose that she does. Yeah. Um, and that's almost fourth wall breaking. Yeah. Um, and then she Luke, you're not wee... Deadpool. Stop it. Yeah, uh, but then she has that wee moment about it, and it's like, you know, what? Well, that's quite nice actually. And mm. I had a wee chuckle at that. That was yeah. quite pleasant. <laughs> yeah, but so yeah, they have do moments, have moments in their own. As you say, Scott, um, and then all the other bits when they're together. I mean, I know they're supposed to be sort of slightly bickering, but it's just it, it doesn't feel like there's any chemistry between them. Yeah, like the actors, not the characters. Yeah, so yeah, just really flat delivery, but yeah, the, the dialogue is pretty insipid anyway, so it's it's maybe partly that. Yeah, because um, there's a few moments where the, like the attempts at humour fall pretty flat, and I guess I mean I know I'm sounding really negative of all the films we're covering in this film. This is by a margin the one I enjoyed most. So <laughs> um, yeah, buckle up, folks, because it's <laughs> going to be a wild ride. But yeah, it's just one of those ones that really did fall apart afterwards but it's a lot of it is the same problems of all the other marvel films you know they're completely there's all the sharp edges are shaved off yeah there's no big highs there's no low lows and it's it kind of really suffers for that um and this may be one of the the worst ones and then you've got the terrible terrible villain the fact it's associated with civil war yeah. at all <laughs> and then just like characters like why are they in there apparently that that taskmaster character Apparently that's controversial. I am vaguely aware that maybe that's because that character was male, as if somehow that would matter. Yeah. <laughs> Unless being male was integral to the character, then the gender of the character as portrayed on screen doesn't matter. But yeah, Olga Kurilenko, well, that was a thankless role. Yes. Uh, for most of the film, a faceless robot. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, and what did she get to say? Like three lines or something? Or three words, probably. Yeah. It's... <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that was a weird casting. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, and it's full of typically stupid stuff like the the scene with the nose breaking, which I knew was coming, but it was very, very stupid. And also, like like falling down the side of a building had no consequence. Yes. <laughs> um, not even a blood. Not let alone bruises. Not even blood. <laughs> I've never broken my nose, but it has been burst several times and. Tends to leave quite a mess on your face. Yes. <laughs> yeah, the other thing was, and I guess this is probably going back to its, its origins, but like the whole idea is, is very Soviet. And so much of it feels like it should be like set in the 60s or 70s. It has that feel about it. Yeah. But it begins in like 1995. It should, so it's, it feels so out of place. And it kind of doesn't make sense because after the fall of Soviet, so who is Ray Winston working for? Yeah. <laughs> and, and why is he doing what he's doing? And how how is he funding a giant magical space castle? I think he's working for the same uh, Russian separatists that were always in the Call of Duty games. Because they, <laughs> um, yeah, maybe. Um, I mean, I know, I know. After a while, that gets kind of self funding, but it's like, 
and the sort of ah uh, no, I'm going to stop now. I mean, yeah, again, it was okay, and I enjoyed it more than you know Black Panther because it made more sense, um, not much more, but also didn't have tin foil covered rhinos because yes, <laughs> that still bothers me. Um, and so it's not the worst of the the Marvel films, and again, it's not Civil War, um, although it has about as much consequence, I think. <laughs> No, uh, yeah, it's all right. I mean, I've seen all the others, and I actually, I can't remember if I've said this in the podcast, just like, I went back and watched all of the Marvel films again towards the start of this year, perhaps. Not that long ago, anyway, and thoroughly enjoyed most of them. I mean, their confections, Martin Scorsese is right, they're roller coaster rides, they're theme park rides, mm-hmm. but that's fine. Sometimes I want a theme park ride, yeah, you know. Um, it's just anybody trying to suggest they're anything other. That's the problem. Yeah. Um, so I enjoyed them. But this is very, very much in the lower half of the output. I would still recommend, I mean, if you've seen others, I'd still recommend it. It's probably enough to, to enjoy. And it doesn't actually feel all that long. No. I don't remember no. particularly noticing it dragging, which I had kind of expected it to. But for, for ones that, it, that was not the case. How long is it? Uh, 134 minutes. It's maybe actually a fraction um, shorter than some of these, but no, it, it flew along quite well. I was um, it, that, that wasn't an issue for once. But if you do watch it, do not stay for the end credits sequence because it's offensive. It's deeply, deeply offensively stupid. What I liked about it is it, it did actually remind me that in continuity, uh, Black Widow's dead because I'd forgotten because that's the amount of emotional impact that Marvel films have on me. Um yeah, of all the Marvel films, as I said before, this is the one that is hurt most by it needing to be a Marvel film when the content clearly needs it not yeah. to be a Marvel film. But as I said, just like you, um, when I was watching it the first time through, it went per- through perfectly fine. So if you're in the, still in the market for Marvel films these days, then this is as as enjoyable enough for a first watch, bring this spectacle as all the rest of them are. Um, but yeah, it, it could have been something much, much better. And I can, it's annoying because I can see those connections that I could have. Yeah. You, you, it doesn't require an awful lot of moving things around to make this something that would actually be really great. Like, um, you know, something that would do for the comic books now, like something like the, the original kind of, like Nolan's Batman films did, something that could actually give it a bit of impact, the lasting impact, and it just doesn't, it chickens out and becomes a Marvel film yeah. again, and that's annoying. <laughs> yeah, what this needed to be, and I think probably what the Marvel films needed, right? what this needed to be was a character piece. Yeah. It's not, it's a crappy action film. Yeah. <laughs> They've got lots of those. Yeah. It needed to be a character piece. Um, yeah. Uh, and that, I'm, I'm slightly worried now about where that end credit sequence is taking us because it's, you know, this this woman who sacrificed, wasn't killed, sacrificed her own life to save the entire universe. Mm. Uh, uh-huh. Well, no, now, now we're going to force a stupid misunderstanding and also diminish um, her sacrifice. So, you know, yay. Yeah. Consequences. <laughs> Well, yes, I, I, this is the film I enjoyed most. Oh God, <laughs> this is going to be a long day. <laughs> well, let's move on from the ridiculous to the. Uh, yeah, I, I'm going to guess it's ridiculous, more ridiculous, sir. Yes, with the Fast and the Furious Nine, whatever they're calling it these days. Well, as far as I could tell, it was called Fast and the Furious Nine, but I, I have also seen it called F Nine. And I couldn't remember what that was a useful shortcut for in most keyboards or most operating systems. <laughs> and I meant to check and see if it, I could have made some joke. And I didn't because, well, I don't care. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I felt compelled to watch Fast and Furious 9, though, because I'm a completionist. 
and you may very well say, Drew, that's an unusual way you have of pronouncing idiot. <laughs> and you'd be right to do so. But we all have to struggle with our own particular personal insanities, and this is mine. <laughs> and certainly it is a struggle, especially since, despite me having had the idea that the series was supposed to conclude with this entry, there are in fact not just one, but two more still to come. Please send help. <laughs> In the meantime, let me vent my spleen on this pish. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I mean, inform you of the nature and quality of this audiovisual entertainment released by Universal Pictures, starring Mark Sinclair, better known by the daft but admittedly more interesting moniker Vincent Diesel, Michelle Rodriguez, John Cena, and Charlize Theron, amongst others. <sighs> These um, violent criminals, if you remember, are now in the world-saving business. Um... And they are called on once again to do just that, this time by rescuing some sort of magical device that can hack any and all weapon systems, and which has been lost in a plane crash. This device, incidentally, is described by the definitely and absolutely not here just for a new speedboat, nor failing to even pretend to try Charlie's Theron as a weapon that's so dangerous it shouldn't exist for 50 years. <laughs> which makes no sense whatsoever, but it's about the standard of writing we can typically expect from this mystifyingly popular franchise. Will its danger be okay in the future? I, I don't understand your point here, women. <laughs> uh, after holding off a regiment of bad guys, also trying to get this device, Diesel's Dominic, who starts banging on about family really early in this film, before <laughs> literally abandoning his infant son within minutes to go off on his dangerous adventure... Uh, Rodriguez is Letty and the others have their targets snatched from them by John Cena's Jacob, who is also Dom's never before mentioned nor even nor even hinted to even exist brother because family. <laughs> Let's set aside one of the other entries in the series directly denying even the possibility of his existence. Something something family family. <laughs> uh, I was genuinely struggling not to swear and groan loudly in the cinema every time the word family got mentioned because it is a lot. <laughs> If this film series had any self-awareness at all, it'd possibly be funny. It has this not. <laughs> the magic device, it turns out, is in two parts. The second of which, in a revelation sure to at least please Scott, is kept in a vault under Edinburgh Castle. That's <laughs> where they keep the really secret stuff. Exactly, exactly how it works. You know where all the really secret stuff is hidden. <laughs> um, leading to a lengthy action sequence in a city we here know very well. So that's kind of nice. It is, however, completely undermined by a Scottish accent so bad I genuinely and audibly winced in the cinema. I'm not joking. There's this it's a security guard and it's meant to be a Scottish accent and I went <laughs> that in the middle of the cinema like really quite loudly. I, I, I couldn't control it. Um, uh, that and Natalie Emmanuel's totally necessary second hacker character delivering some of the daftest and dumbest dialogue yet in the franchise. It took me a while to decide if Emmanuel herself is terrible, or if it was the dialogue she was being given to say. But I realised I was burning unnecessary cognitive cycles determining this when the answer was clearly, it's both. <laughs> this sequence also sees the beginning of a strand that will last to the end of the film that demonstrates that writers Justin Lin and Daniel Casey have an even flimsier grasp on the functioning of magnets than the insane clown posse. <laughs> That's quite a feat. What can a magnet do? Whatever you want. <laughs> uh, and then the film somehow gets stupider. 
I'm not sure um, if you are, Scott, but anyone listening familiar with Top Gear may remember the episode in which James May and Richard Hammond attempted to turn a Reliant Robin into a space shuttle. The climax of the film features what is basically a scaled-up version of that, <laughs> in which Ludacris and Tyrese Gibson's comic relief characters, Tej and Roman, save the world by going into space in a junky old car. Uh, I've skipped a lot of what happens between Edinburgh and space. Sorry, what? <laughs> Sorry? What? <laughs> and also, as a follow-up question, sorry? What? <laughs> I've not seen this, as maybe apparent, but that sounds actually entirely believable from what I understand of the franchise. So yes, okay, carry on. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it is noticeably more stupid than racing a nuclear submarine. And... <laughs> <laughs> A junk car. And I'm not joking. It really did call to mind the the Reliant Robin space shuttle in <laughs> um, Top Gear. Although it didn't get very far before blowing up. And I'm pretty sure that's exactly what would actually have happened here. Um, <laughs> yes. In makeshift space suits because, you know, that, that would be a thing that would work yes. well. Um, and, and, and then they drive in space. On the space road. Yeah, Space M5. It's not quite stupid as that, but but like the way they <laughs> they, they manoeuvre their vehicle, basically they drive in space. It's very stupid. But as I said, um, and before said, Scott says, sorry, what again? Uh, <laughs> I've skipped a lot between Edinburgh and space, but none of it's interesting. And I'd have to use the word family so often it'd reach semantic satiation and lose all meaning. <laughs> I appreciate that this is not really my type of film. For anyone interested, my preferred genre is good movie. (laughs) But even for fans of the series, I struggle to see much appeal because it's all so derivative. I don't think there's a single original idea in here. Fast 9 even resurrecting another character considered dead. And Dom's family thing is it's serious taking the piss levels. Even adding in some nonsense about being worthy of the Toretto name. You know, worthy of the name of the... The guy that um, assaulted someone and went to prison for nearly killing a person and then became a violent hijacker. You you know, that family name. The action scenes are lacklustre. The hand-to-hand scenes unviewable, thanks to Born Supremacy-esque editing. The acting is awful, the writing worse. And perhaps most crucially, almost everyone involved is taking it all deadly seriously. (laughs) I say almost everyone. Charlie Theron clearly could not care less. Well, Helen Mirren probably couldn't be unprofessional if she tried. <laughs> Though, why her character's an arms dealer and a jewel thief is not something to film comments on. But I would have thought being one precluded having time for the other. <laughs> she likes a bit of trouble. This was clearly established in the last film, I think. Unless I'm confusing it with a different film. I think it was. <laughs> so, uh, the only She's also in Hobbs and Shaw. That's what I'm thinking of, yeah. uh, But she was also in the one before that, I believe. Ah, okay. Or, or was she I, Maybe in the fast. I, I don't know. I genuinely can't end. remember anything of them. There was one in Tokyo, I remember that. Yeah. Hobbs and Shaw also invented extra family members when it was convenient to. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's again, nothing's new in this series. Um, the only thing that made Fate of the Furious, that, that's the last made in Fast and Furious for those mm. unable to keep track because the names are really terrible. <laughs> the only thing that made that even vaguely tolerable was the charisma of Jason Statham and Dwayne Johnson mm. and their clear acknowledgement of the nonsense they were acting in. <laughs> Neither Statham nor Johnson are in this film. 
And I realised now I could have reduced this review to just that one sentence. <laughs> Sorry. Silly me. Yes, bad times all round. I'm glad I've not seen this and I'm not going to. <laughs> I, mean, I imagine at some point I'll probably trip over and wind up watching it, but yes, n- not going to look forward to that experience. <laughs> so, it, it, it's Pixar next. Um, in a film where some words in Italian for some reason because they might be Italian words that the studio or the audience would recognise and that's about the amount of thought that went into Luca um, to give away my thoughts there already <laughs> Scott yes Luca so I don't want to be negative but oh. Luca the, the latest Pixar film is a fairly broad adaptation of the Suzanne Vega song it must be said although he does live fairly high up at some points in the film which is probably a reference to the second floor that's Probably what happened. Um, yes, as you say, off the shores of Italy, a young sea monster, Luca, voiced by Jacob Tremblay, lives a sheltered life herding goatfish, fearing the vicious land monsters that stalk the local town of Porto Rosso, although he cannot help but be curious about it. That curiosity leads him to Jack Dylan Grazer's Alberto, a slightly older sea monster, who spends much of his time on land and who helps Luca adjust to the magical changes that occur to a young boy as he moves from the sea to the land, that being looking like a common regarding human boy when dry and a sea monster when wet. The two become fast friends, in part over a shared love of the Vespa they see in one of Alberto's posters, but Luca's parents find out about this, uh, his expeditions on land and threaten to send Luca to the deep sea. Not fancying a diet of whale carcass, Luca and Alberto go on the lamb to Porto Rosso where they meet Emma Berman's uh, Julia, a fellow outcast and an ally against the local bully Ercole. Uh, another friendship forms, this time with the goal of winning the Porto Rosso Cup Triathlon, with the funds affording them an opportunity to buy a rather less cosmetically impressive Vespa than they might have hoped for. Needless to say, things don't go to plan with Luca's parents searching for him and the constant threat of, well, any water at all, re- revealing the sea monstericity of Luca and Alberto, making them fair game for the town's bounty hunters and Ercole and his henchmen being a continual thorn in their size. Now, you could reasonably accuse this film of being Pixar by numbers, and I think in a plotted recap it certainly comes across that way. In fact, it doesn't sound all that far away from it onward, which isn't a good sign. Uh, but I think Luca has a great deal more heart to it than we've seen from Pixar lately, and even its plowing a fairly familiar field. This is the most fun I've had watching one of their films since Coco. This, admittedly, is not a high bar. Uh, It's funny, has an abundance of charm, and it captures the feelings of childhood friendships quite well. My heart was warmed. Now, I don't think I've got a great deal more to say about Luca, so for once I'll just resist the urge to dribble on and fill time and recommend it to just about everyone, bar hardcore Pixar haters, which apparently you are, Drew. I may be becoming one. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I think... Pixar has been on a very steady and inexorable downward trend for a long time now. Yeah, I remember I referenced Onward specifically because I I didn't think much of Onward, but I didn't hate it. But I remember you being quite vitriolic about it, so I imagine you're having much the same feeling about this. Yeah. So it's not it's a trend, not a um, like a disastrous drop off because, <laughs> because you know Toy Story four was not excellent like the Toy Story films, but it was very good. Mm. Um, so. Soul I quite enjoyed, but yeah. Onward was garbage. Um, this is also garbage. It's worse than Onward. It's awful. It's only like 90 minutes and it feels like three hours. It's mm. so bad. I did not like a single thing about this. It, it's Interesting. <laughs> quite amused me. Quite how differently we feel about this film, yeah. Scott. Yeah, I, I just didn't I didn't buy the friendship at all. I thought the acting was terrible. The writing was appalling. The, the humour was absent. And I, I don't want to not like films. <laughs> Again, my favourite genre is good film. Yeah. I just haven't seen any lately, apparently. 
yeah, I don't like it. I don't set out to, well, I'll admit sometimes tearing a film apart that I, I didn't enjoy is... Yes. Um, I don't set out to watch bad films apart from going to see Fast and Furious 9. <laughs> yes, but that's again, that's a slightly different thing. But, um, yeah, no, I just I thought Luke was terrible. The, the humour was completely absent. Um, the characters weren't characters. Um, and I just, I just didn't buy the friendship. And, and it's it has that kind of traditional thing of you know, like you've got a couple of friends and the girl joins the group and like one resents the other because one's to get on with the girl or whatever. Um, yeah, but they've been knowing each other for three days. Mm. Literally three days. Oh, right, yeah, okay. And ridiculously accelerated timelines. It's a particular bugbear of mine that I've come to realise. And there are hints there, actually, that they might have done something interesting because I had the idea that there was at least a hint there that whichever one isn't... Who's the, the slightly taller one with more hair? That'll be Alberto then. Alberto, yeah. They don't have characters, Scott. I can't remember. <laughs> they, they have no personality. Um, eh, eh, that guy, yeah, I thought that perhaps he was, perhaps had feelings for Luca himself. Mm. Um, but no, this is a Disney film. That's not going to happen. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to spend too long on this because well, I've got other films to hate instead. Um, <laughs> this, uh, yeah, the problem, the big problem I had is that you're from it. I, I you know like you as well, Scott. But um, so I think Craig too. All three of us like some of the the best Pixar stuff is some of the best stuff ever. Toy Story two and three, Coco. Remember mm. that was the one we've all loved recently. Yeah. Um, but we've never been like the Pixar can do no wrong thing. So many people seem to think. Um, presumably, those people haven't seen the Cars films because they're terrible. <laughs> but from the beginning, one of the things that really marked out Pixar films was that they were genuine family films yeah um really like they were for all ages it wasn't it often wasn't a case of you know there was a joke for the adults and a joke for the kid like everyone was laughing at the same thing and we found but this is the first pixar film that i've watched that i feel was genuinely just a kid's film that was my really strong feeling about it it's like mm. it's like the final made one that was like made for six-year-olds not for adults and i think that's why i just Clearly, you feel differently. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm gesticulating wildly here because for, you know, the radio. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, it's, for me, this just felt like it was it was actually a kid's film. It had sort of kid's stakes and kid's level of dialogue and it, just, it seemed to me so boring and soulless and empty. And no, nah, honestly, the only... Th- <laughs> I, I'm not saying this just the... Um, be a get or anything like no, the only thing in the whole film that I enjoyed was the um at the end of the race when it was raining and and how the cobbles looked the light on the cobbles at the end like that's a really nice effect that's a good shader that is yep. <laughs> I didn't enjoy the rest of it at all oh uh, fair enough I won't deny your lived experience but no I quite enjoyed most of this I thought I thought the characters were actually quite well observed I thought most of the relationships were sort of you know, clearly it's kids, so it has a certain kiddish feeling towards it. Uh, but uh, most of it was seemed fairly well observed, evoked a certain feeling of nostalgia for that kind of era of my own childhood. So, yeah, I clearly got much more out of it from you. And uh, it's certainly by no means the funniest uh, Pixar film or anything like that, but it was I found it tolerably amusing all the way throughout. So clearly, obviously, got much more out of it than you did, and uh, I'm, I'm glad for that. So <laughs> yes, <laughs> I shall well, take that for what I will. I, 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 
I'm glad for you. This is instead of I'm not glad there, for me. I'm glad for you. There's been a few. There's been a few times where you convinced me a film that I liked was actually awful. But no, this is not one of them. <laughs> I still quite enjoyed this one, so I'd happily watch it again at some point in the future. So, yeah. No, uh, this is one. I, <laughs> um, this may be the worst Pixar film ever. I, I don't say that lightly because I've seen Cars three. And cars, oh God! I, but no, I, 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 I would say if you say this is worse than Cars Three, I think you may actually be on crack. I think we might have to go and get you some. We're going to have to get you some lithium to get your moods back under control because this can't be great. This is that's that's. So I will not abide that, sir. I will not abide that. Oh, see, I was about to say that, like, um, as well as like not setting out to not enjoy films, like, <laughs> the fact that there's not a, a like Black Widow is the peak of my enjoyment for the films in this episode <laughs> we're covering, Scott. Uh, I'm wondering whether you know maybe there's something like wrong with me, but partly because the sun's been out, but my mood's been better in the last couple of weeks than it's been for like a year. <laughs> so I honestly don't think it's that. And then we did those. Alex de la Iglesia films recently, including one that I had hated in the past and quite liked it this time around. <laughs> so no, I don't think it's me. I think that you're wrong yes. and anybody who likes this is wrong and I'm right yes. because I'm the final arbiter of taste. It's the kids that are wrong. <laughs> I didn't need to say all of that out loud right enough. But, um, <laughs> There's a Simpsons reference for everything, isn't there? <laughs> no, I, I think it's the first time... Well, no, it's not definitely the first time again, the Cars films, but it's... A Pixar film I just didn't think had any magic of any kind in it at all. Mm. Normally I can find something. I've always loved Pixar's light, which is what's coming into that Mm -hmm. rainy cobbles thing at the end. But even that's, no, I just, it left me so cold. And I'm really disappointed by that. (laughs) It's almost as though it was a DreamWorks film. (laughs) I I don't know if you're expecting me to say a steady on or something. No. I can just mostly nod along with that, (laughs) So we're told by academics that we should love tomorrow because it is only but a day away. But what if tomorrow also contained a war, Drew? Would you be on board with the Tomorrow War? I'm pretty <laughs> sure you already know that the answer's no. Because I mean, <laughs> but um, well, I'll tell you why no. Yes. Um, Amazon, in the guise of Amazon Prime Video, has been trying to catch up with Netflix for years. And there are many similarities between the two services. <laughs> Inevitably then, and at the risk of giving away further my opinion in my opening paragraph, to approach parity, Amazon would need to keep building their own bank of disappointing science fiction titles. <laughs> and so enter the Tomorrow War. Another box office victim of the pandemic pulled from cinemas and sold to Amazon for $200 million so that they could say, Observe Netflix, we too have garbage, banal, trite science fiction action films that completely <laughs> squander an interesting premise. Though maybe their marketing team could find a pithier way of saying that. <laughs> that premise is that about 30 years in the future, humanity is on the verge of extinction, having been mostly eaten by creatures called white spikes that seemingly just turned up one day. I would like to point out that spikes are not the most instantly noticeable features of these aliens, and they're in fact almost entirely white, and white spike is an almost deliberately terrible and insipid name. <laughs> It is, in fact, a name very emblematic of the film as a whole. <laughs> to, save the fe- the, to save the species, future Ussies can script soldiers from the only available place, the past. That high-concept idea actually starts with one or two interesting moments. The future humans decide to announce the war and the related draft in the middle of the World Cup final in Qatar next year, featuring an instantly recognisable Brazil versus a made-up country for some reason. One of the single most watched television events in any year it happens, and with worldwide appeal. 
That's actually pretty smart if you want to make sure your message is seen by as many people as possible. Well, okay, it starts with an interesting moment. (laughs) It's also unfortunately the last and everything else is just derivative. Now, that's not necessarily a barrier to enjoyment or quality. No, it's everything else in the film that's a barrier to enjoyment or quality. A large part of that is actually the very first thing we see, which is Chris Pratt, perennial relegation contender in the great Hollywood Chris League, (laughs) and his big, goofy face trying to look all serious and worried. And, you know, failing, clearly. (laughs) Uh, Things do not get better from here, really, and goofiness in general is a big part of the problem, starting with the casting. As well as him off of Parks and Recreation and Guardians of the Galaxy, we have Chloe from 24, a goofy recurring character from Parks and Recreation, and Richard from Veep, all (laughs) trying and failing very, very hard to be funny in a film that involves a worldwide human population having been reduced to less than half a million people, uh, and those that are left routinely becoming snacks. So, you know, comedy. (laughs) Such a situation can employ humour, certainly, but goofy and buffoonish comedy ain't it, Chief. Dark humour would be the thing. And of course you'd want someone who could actually handle that. Perhaps a gifted comic actor like the great J.K. Simmons, who's in the damn movie and isn't given a single funny thing to say and isn't always completely squandered. <laughs> and that in itself is enough to advise you giving this a body swerve. There are plenty of others too, like the plot and the details and the acting and the writing and the action and the design. No, just one or two things. <laughs> The screenplay is the biggest though, refusing to address things like what actually convinced people that the future usses were real, and then to sacrifice their lives. Why a politician refuses to sanction a mission that might save the entire species. Why soldiers were pointlessly sent to the future with literally no training. Why the key to the survival of the human race comes down to a high school pupil. Or why material from the future couldn't be sent back to the past to give humanity an extra 30 years of research time. The answer, for the most part, of course, is because a movie needs to happen. A most unsatisfactory answer for an intelligent, logical person like myself. Or probably even for a concussed puppy, really. (laughs) I mean, they could at least pay lip service to some of it. But the worst thing is it's just really dull. And it's nigh on impossible to care about it. I am aware that my words up till now may well belie that, but I care in the abstract rather than the actual... A lengthy scene in the future period between two characters might, in another film, have been touching. But here it's kind of irrational and mostly a scene between two people, both of whom have faces. (laughs) Most of the film feels like that, at least when it's not been hugely derivative, with the clear influence of, and the creation of direct references to, everything from The Thing from Another World, The Thing, you know, the good one, and The Thing, the terrible one, to battle Los Angeles and Prometheus. And yes, the monsters do roar at the screen several <laughs> times. Happy times here, old mate Drew, you can be sure. Mediocre pish, avoid. Uh, yeah, I'm not particularly going to disagree with this one. I, I didn't hate it. Uh, let's say mediocrity is something I cannot bring myself to either hate or love. Um, it's... Uh, um, I, mean, I just get myself worked up to write this stuff because yeah. like watching it, I was just bored at my girts because it was just so mediocre. And yeah. I that. So a, a solid waste of a decent concept. Uh, I kind of got the, you know, settling in like the first, you know, what, 20 minutes by the time it's kind of shown its hand of what it's trying to do. It's like, okay, I, I get it. You're sort of 
probably speaking halfway between Starship Troopers and Edge of Tomorrow, but nowhere near as good as either of them. Fair enough. Let's see where you're going with this. And where you're going is nowhere. <laughs> and, uh, um, yeah, it's, it's it's a waste of a good uh, concept. I, I promised myself long ago I'm not going to try and litigate any kind of laws of time travel as it relates to any specific movie, but I was quite annoyed by this one. Seemingly kind of saying you can't, we better not have any kind of paradoxes, that would be a bad thing, and then specifically having the last act be creating a paradox. Um, And maybe there's some way to loophole you out of that, but what I was more annoyed by was, something you mentioned as well, is what on earth is the plan here? Why are they just sending ground troops, untrained ground troops, to the future to die for no reason when you're fighting an enemy, which at least as shown in this film, whose only viable anti-airstrike tactic is to jump. Why don't you send in some helicopters and or drones? Lots and lots of drones. That would be much more effective at fighting these people. What? Yeah, so largely on a tactical level, I disagree with this film uh, because (laughs) it is just dumb. It's um, it, it's got a very. I, I don't know. Is, is this original? Was this adapted from it? This feels like a young adult kind of adaptation. It where, feels like that, but I think it's original. Um, that's, a, that's a kind of slightly going thing. Yes. Um, written by Zach Dean, and it doesn't. Who's a screenwriter? I would <laughs> seem to mention yeah. anything on IMDb about it being from a book or anything. I think it's just um, yeah, bad and original. This is like the first draft of a good idea that needed a few more. A few more cycles through oh, yeah. it to to go through it. Yeah, it's. it's I know what you're saying the YA thing is it. It's definitely of the quality of the fifth wave. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'd forgotten about that until you mentioned it. So you know, thanks for Sorry. that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, I don't have much else to say about it. I don't. I didn't hate it. It past two hours. I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. Um, I, this is. I would be incredibly upset if I'd watched this in a cinema um, if, so, if it's something you just stumble across or you're blousing through Amazon then okay it's better than staring yeah. at a blank wall but there's definitely better things on Amazon Prime assuming you could uh, be watching blank, <laughs> blank walls don't tend to make me angry which the film did a couple of times yeah. uh, and you know it's coming but so we, we need to so before I actually go into that but the, the bit I mentioned about the politician too it's like like it's completely irrational mm. like, here's this person who's come back from the future but a few people that survived because like the, the, the casualty mm. rate's like 90% or something in their 7 day tour Yeah, this person comes back and goes look I've got the key to finishing this they're like no 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 we can't do that because of um, film has to happen reasons Yes, <laughs> it, it's mind bendingly stupid <laughs> it's like the kind of issue I remember you had um, which I had to do but it's like, I remember you it being a particular bugbear of yours remember the fifth Harry Potter film when like they're refusing to believe that the bad guy's back because of quick look over there yes. you know it's, it's, <laughs> it's mind bendingly stupid it's kind of like that it's less integral to the entire plot because it comes towards the end Yeah, and it's more to set up that really underwhelming action scene mm-hmm. um, but again J.K. Simmons totally squandered um, but yeah, they come back like conveniently. They can find lots of information about where it's come from just by like three minutes on a microscope. Something, something <laughs> volcanoes. Who do we know who knows something about volcanoes? Oh, this person in a school, <laughs> yes. a child. <laughs> uh, that that point, I absolutely checked out. Yes. Yeah, no, this film deserves nothing. <laughs> You get nothing. Good day, sir. Unfortunately, our sequel has already been greenlit, so yeah, I know they forced me to watch it. I'm not going to be completely <laughs> about this one. 
<laughs> it's not all film series. I have to see all of them. Yes. Um, yeah, just the really good ones, right? <laughs> yes. It's, it's only the best of them, Scott. The ones about family, mostly. <laughs> family. Right, so we're going to move on from that to something that's a bit of a hangover from our Zombies episode from a couple of years ago, which is, well, yes, a zombie film, but a zombie film that's from Jim Jarmusch, who we last enjoyed in Patterson. (laughs) Uh, uh, The wonderful film about the poet who wrote about matchbooks. (laughs) Oh, dear. Scott, the dead don't die. Yes, what do we let ourselves in for? Um, the dead don't die, which is, as you mentioned, Jim Jarmusch's 2019 zombie flick. It's maybe not the obvious choice for revisiting, particularly given that I'm not a massive fan of either horror films or Jim Jarmusch films. Uh, but <laughs> it did present such a contrast from last month's execrable Army of the Dead that it seemed like it would make for some interesting comparisons. And I suppose it does, in a way. Any um, tried and trusted zombie film style, a small American town is beset by a plague of dead rising from their graves and causing their unique brand of shambolic mayhem, while the quirky bunch of locals try to survive. Well, broadly speaking, anyway. Uh, the police force are, of course, the first responders to this unpleasantness, headed by Bill Murray's Chief Cliff Robertson and Adam Driver's officer Ronnie Peterson, the latter of whom knows that this will end badly because he's read the script and is already tired of Sergio Simpson's title music. Yes, it's one of those films. Um, uh, more characters in the ensemble are introduced, like Steve Buscemi's irascible racist Frank Miller, a farmer, and Danny Glover's Hank Thompson, a hardware store owner who is most certainly too old for the and also Tilda Swinton's <laughs> Zelda Winston, the town's new undertaker, plays as if she was David Bowie's The Man Who Fell to Earth by the Way of the Isle of Lewis, for good reason, as it turns out. There's many other well-kent faces, of course, like Selena Gomez's Zoe, who's part of a stereotypically young adult out-of-towners, whose days are obviously numbered, and there's also Iggy Pop as a coffee zombie, and, if I recall correctly, Riza as a delivery driver, and, with all credit to whoever wrote the Wikipedia entry for this film, Tom Waits as a baroquely bearded eccentric hermit. Right, now, this is the sort of film where any sort of detailed plot recap would be completely redundant, so let's just say that it's an exceedingly low-key take on the genre, at least in terms of the reactions of most of the cast to the events, the incongruity of which is where the film derives most of its humour. The critical question is, of course, is it funny? And my answer is... Eh, kinda? Um, which itself is quite a trick, as its early doors fourth-wall demolition made me want to buy a physical copy of this just to destroy it. But <laughs> in hindsight, it popping up as an occasional running gag does kind of work for me, particularly by the end, at which point the silliness of it has been cranked up from underlying to overwhelming. Now, its humour is more situational than set up at some punch, uh, punchlines, and will 100% not be to everyone's taste. In fact, I'm pretty sure that everyone that watches this film will find it hit and miss, and the relative percentages of both will naturally determine your overall enjoyment of the film. And it's very hard for me to guide you, dear audience, if it's going to land for you. But let's just say, if you cannot stand the sort of torture comedy of Austin Powers' extended urination scene, then there's at least one chunk of this that will drive you up the wall. Now, I've not seen the obvious comparison point, Jeremy's only lovers left alive is vampire flick, but I can at least say this shares a similar sense of urgency as danger as the other Jeremy's driver vehicle, Patterson, which is an outlandish thing to say. Uh, I've also seen this as described as respectingly genre. I'm not so sure on that. While the practical zombie body chomping effects are a homage to Tom Savini, uh, there's one jab, or what I perceive this one at any rate, about the exceedingly superficial critique of consumer 
consumerism, uh, consumerism that's attributed to the dawn of the dead. And yes, I will die on this hill and then come back as a zombie and eat you. So where does that leave the dead don't die? Uh, for a film that appears on a quick bounce around review sites to be a film that you either love or hate, I'm broadly indifferent about it. Um, <laughs> overall, I suppose I enjoyed it enough not to regret spending a, a couple of hours with it. And if you have a greater affinity for Jarmusch's quirky indie sensibilities, then you'll probably enjoy this. But that's certainly not a broad recommendation. If it sounds up your street, watch it. If it doesn't, don't. I'm not the boss of you. Live your life. Be free. I, however, am the boss of you. <laughs> I command you to... No, um, I'm probably fairly close to the indifferent thing. Um I didn't dislike it. Um, I was too puzzled by most of it to to have that sort of a feeling. Yes, this is generally my response to almost... To, I think every Jim Jarmusch film I've seen is, I'm puzzled by this. I don't understand it. I don't hate it, <laughs> yeah. but I'm just not sure what the point is. <laughs> Despite the addition of Bill Murray, it, it, I was going to say it's not as good as Patterson, but Patterson's not good, but it, it, it's not as, it's as in, Patterson. Yes, it, it's intriguing in a sort of way somehow um yeah i was a bit worried at the start when adam driver um turns to bill murray says uh, he says why is this funny it's a theme tune yeah yeah uh, um, okay Mm. and what was weird though is like it could have been really annoying but then it's just so infrequently i can like well why did they bother yes like it happens twice it's, in the whole film. It's one of the many things that makes me go, "Why? Like, why is yeah. why is there an actual alien in this? I don't understand. Yeah. Uh, and why why was she Scottish? Uh, yes, yeah, all good questions. Um, um, and I mean, I've seen Tilda Swinton do Scottish acts before. I think she's Scottish and young Adam, isn't she? But, um, hmm. She's not the worst at it. So I mean, it wasn't offensive, unlike that thing in Fast and Furious Nine. But, um, <laughs> it was a couple of bum notes, but that was okay. It was more just like. But why? Hmm. Although, yeah, my response to a lot of the film was, but why? <laughs> I mean, maybe it's because, Scott, this film was written by a wild animal, or perhaps several wild animals. <laughs> yes. Um, so there were a couple of running gags that amused yes. me. Um, it's, I don't know, it's so strange. I've, people are just pulling all sorts of stuff out of this film that's quite clearly not in there. And the point you mentioned too about that's definitely a dig at the idea that um, Dawn of the Dead's about anything yeah. beyond the bit that this film actually says, which is what we both feel like. Um, it's like they're, they're just doing stuff that they used to do. It's kind of mm. memory. It's not a comment on consumerism. Yeah. That's a pretty heavy dig in this. But at the same time, I don't know whether he's he's inv- deliberately inviting people doing the same thing to his film, but people have done it and it's, it's just not in there. Yeah, I saw one... Um, like a pill quote from somewhere they were saying that this is one of the the angriest films they've seen all year and it's because it's full of this really strong environmental message and I'm like really? I'm watching the environmental like subplots going on this and thinking I could pretty much just as easily see that possibly even more easily as like him thinking that global warming's nonsense mm. that he's making fun of that rather than making a point there's just it's not in there yes so that could be either way, because I, I don't think he's saying anything. But again, now what I'm wondering is, is he deliberately trying to goad people? <laughs> because some yeah. people really have glommed at this, because there's that, the idea that, it, that this planet's slowing down because of polar fracking. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that that's what's making zombies. But it's like, it could just be sort of like the nonsense science you get in films like this, which is kind of what I've, I'd settled on for the most part. 
Um, so like, whether it's a comet going over, or it's a virus, or something like that, or it's like, in this case, the planet's slowing down because of stuff. But people have really gone, so this is it's a furious film. It's really angry at the strong environmental. Eh, I don't think yeah. that's in there. <laughs> I really don't. But yeah, it's it's weird. Um, special effects aren't great. I I assume that they spent all of the money on Adam Driver. Yeah. So they didn't have any money left for the zombie special effects? It's, it's difficult to render Adam Driver. He's got a lot of triangles um, that you need to shade and such like that. I'm not, I'm not a scientist. I don't know how it works, but I think that is how it works, right? Well, I assume they, they really had a run out of money for rendering Adam Driver because they, when they rendered him in a car, they had to do a smaller car. Yes. <laughs> uh, which is less triangles, less polygons, because yeah. um, <laughs> he looked like he was in a silly wee toy. Um, but that was quite amusing. I mean, and the thing is, like, some of it sort of invites... Like there's some sort of uh, comedy stuff because like they very very clearly show you that the town only has 768 people. You see that sign, the yeah. population sign, several times. Yet it's got a police force and a motel and a funeral home and a young offenders institute um, in a town that's big enough to support a shop. <laughs> a village that's big enough to support a shop. Yeah. So like. Is that a kind of like making fun of where things like this are sometimes set, or is he seeing something else? I'm like, I, mean, I don't know enough about Jim Jarmusch, but my my gut reaction is that he's kind of taking the piss with everything. Mm. <laughs> There's and stuff again; it doesn't really go anywhere. Like the the Steve Buscemi character, who they they peg quite early as just being a bit of a git, mm. but then you see him in the restaurant wearing that Keep America White Again hat. Yes, <laughs> uh, and but then. He says, this coffee's too damn black for me because he doesn't enjoy his coffee. And then he looks at Danny Glover, who's sitting right next to him, and goes, oh, I just mean it's too strong for me. Mm. So you don't want to show, suggest <laughs> you actually be amazed, but you're wearing that hat. Is, <laughs> is he saying anything? The filmmaker, I mean, or, or what? But then that goes nowhere anyway. It's irrelevant. Yeah. There's a lot of irrelevance yeah. to this. Like the, even the, the, I don't think you've mentioned it in the recap, but the, the kids that break out of that juvenile uh, wall doesn't, again, just doesn't go anywhere. Um, I, I don't know how much of this actually was scripted and how much of this was just, let, yeah, let's get some people on and try and fill something up. I believe it was scripted because I seem to remember that um, I was reading that it was Bill Murray until this went and kind of signed on to this and they, there was a script attached to it at some point. So, yes, uh, maybe, maybe we did actually see the script, but it has the feeling of something that was kind of improvised a lot of it. That kind of real hit and miss and sort of general arcs not really tying up and it just sort of meandering along and then stopping rather than having any kind of real ending. Yeah, it's. I, I'm going to at some point need to go and sit, just watch all of Jarmusch's films because I'm, I'm interested in them. I'm not sure I actually like any of them, but I find them very interesting. So we'll probably do it at some point. But uh, yeah, it, I, I, I can't in all good conscience recommend this to anyone that is not already. <laughs> knowing that they're going to go into like it. You know what I mean? It's, it's the kind of film that you probably already know if you're going to like. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, definitely not for a, a, a general audience at all, though. No, um, again, I, I didn't dislike it, but I was mostly baffled. Yes. <laughs> so I, I didn't, I definitely enjoy it, but I didn't like dislike it. Um, I've only seen a couple of other Jim Jarmusch films that I can I've seen Coffee and Cigarettes, but that mm. was so long ago. I guess one of the songs amazing, mm. I've not seen it so long ago. Um, that I can't, at least can't bring to mind yeah. much about it. And Broken Flowers, and most of what I remember is Bill Murray and some flowers, um, <laughs> which is not really a particularly great memory of it. Uh, 
So I maybe revisit, revisit some Jim Jarmusch stuff. It's, it's kind of interestingly weird enough that I think I'd want to. Yeah. But it feels even like in the editing and stuff that they might have kind of been improvising because like at one point there's a sparkle around Selena Gomez, like, but that's the only time anything like that's seen in the whole film. Yeah. Like a wee kind of digital golden sparkle around her, right? Yeah. It kind of... I feel like maybe it would be the sort of thing that might be a reference to Pulp Fiction or something because there's that one moment in Pulp Fiction when Uma Thurman says, you know, don't be a square and then yeah. the thing appears on the screen and it always stood out for me. <laughs> I never was quite happy about what that was meant to mean. Yeah. Um, so it's like just to give away the artifice or did you think it was funny or just uh, I'll stick that in here, why not? Or maybe it was like, well, everything else in here is basically so people can get out of it whatever the hell they want because everything's in there <laughs> if you're looking for it, even though like that thing, that means that none of it's in there. Yeah. I don't know. It, it's interesting and weird. I certainly wouldn't put it in with other zombie films. <laughs> no. Or other films, really. <laughs> it, it is a thing of its own. Yes. It belongs to the genre of Jim Jarmusch films, which seems to be the only thing it can possibly relate to. When it's closest relative that I've seen is a film about a, a poetry writing bus driver where no drama happens and it's essentially the same vibe as this film that's a zombie film. Yeah, it's probably not really a zombie film, so... Yeah. Right, well, maybe a zombie film will have fallen under the censor's blade, but what about a film that talks about the censors themselves? Now we finally have one of those in the form of censor. Drew, what's that about? Censor, Scott. I don't really answered my own question in the intro there, didn't I? <laughs> uh, it, it's been a while since we had an entry into our occasional series, Drew Tries Horror Again. <laughs> a series which perhaps ought to carry the subtitle, Jesus, will he never learn? <laughs> Still, this film, Censor, wasn't directed by Ari Aster, the party responsible for the last two entries in a strand on the podcast. It looked interesting, at least. And I liked the poster, which was original, played on the film's concept, and, well, didn't look like one of the six styles that all other posters have. Something that's probably illegal now, come to think of it. <laughs> um, and sometimes that flash of creativity can be enough to hook me. You know what I liked about this film? I saw The Running Time, and it was 80 minutes, and I thought, yes! Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, I-, I may have something to say about that, Scott. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. <laughs> Uh, the film itself is a modestly budgeted British horror, set in the early 1980s during the video nasty era, when busybodies like the prudish and puritanical Mary Whitehouse were stinking up the joint. In another almost certainly legal step, this is a 1980s film with nearly a glimpse of a Rubik's Cube, Dilly Bop or other such lazy visual <laughs> shorthand. Rather, this is a 1980s of ugly clothes, ugly references and brown. In one of these ugly offices and some of these ugly clothes, brown, actually, <laughs> is our protagonist, Enid, played by Neve Algar, a censor for the BBFC whose potentially rather unpleasant job it is to watch and rate films, suggesting cuts were necessary, or in some cases banning the films entirely. Her boss at the BBFC seems very cosy with the producer of some video nasties, Michael Smiley's Doug Smart, and soon Enid is personally selected to watch and read some of the films resubmitted for classification by Smart. While watching one of these films, Enid is reminded of an, if not suppressed, then very hazy episode in her past, when her sister, Nina, went missing while the two were together. Nina was never seen again, but her parents have just obtained a death certificate in the hopes of allowing everyone in particular Enid, to move on. There's something else going on, it would seem, though, as Enid's parents seem vague on details and certainly aren't keen to answer Enid's questions on the matter. 
prone, it seems, to obsessive behaviour, Ina starts to become preoccupied with her sister, even more so when she convinces herself that an actress in another director's films is, in fact, Nina. Ina then tries to find this actress and begins by visiting the producer, Doug, at his house late one night. This meeting does not end well, <laughs> at least for Ina's mind, and... Ina's mind's where we spend the remainder of the film, as her reality dissolves and becomes mixed with the video nasties. I didn't expect this to be scary, and beyond one entirely unwelcome and ineffectual orchestral stab it doesn't try, but I was hoping for unsettling, creepy or disturbing. But nope, nothing doing, it's just really, really boring. Uh, certainly not without merit, as there are moments here and there of flair, including some simply but very effectively lit scenes that recall some of the nasties of the time, as well as more widely non-horror titles like Suspiria, and actually a really, really effective suggestion of unseen goriness through the means of the bottom of the cone of light from a projector turning red. But that's all it's got going for it. A little style, and that mostly in paying homage to or less charitably aping, some classic and not-so-classic horrors. Director Prano Bailey Bond and her DP Annika Summerson also tried to match the aesthetics of grainy VHS, but when was that last impressive? There must be hundreds of After Effects plugins or even smartphone apps that can do the same job, or perhaps even do the job better, as some of the videos actually look too good in sensor. You've perhaps noticed that I'm mostly talking about the visuals, and there's a reason. Sensors all surface. There's certainly plenty of scope for something substantial here. The video nasty moral panic itself. The unending hypocrisy of newspapers. Perhaps the fact that during some of the years of the panic, politicians decried the effects of imagined violence, while parts of the country were literally on fire in protest against Margaret Thatcher's policies. It could even address the effects of multiple years of this kind of work, which is the closest the film gets to saying anything though it seems clear that Enid was troubled in spite of this job, not because of it. It just provides an interesting visual device for a fractured psyche. It is also deathly slow, which is distressing in a film that's only 84 minutes long. Classified NS is not suitable for any audience. I didn't hate this uh, as much as you seem to, but I, I don't want to say I particularly recommend it either. It's certainly no Barbarian Sound Studio, um, which... No, I didn't hate this, Scott. I was just plowed bored. Plowed similar paths. Um, yeah, it's... I, I guess I might have been expecting a bit more from it because uh, I, it's sort of an interesting enough concept and I was happily going along with it for about the first half. It was like, okay, I see where you're going now. Where are you going to go? And the rest of it, and the way it goes, the rest of it is exactly the same direction as you were expecting based on the first forty minutes. But there's 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 no surprises in here. It's um, there's no twists. Um, I I appreciate that that is trying to be something a bit more in the kind of veins of a psychological horror. It's not relying on like ridiculous supernatural elements or anything like that. Mm. It is relatively grounded. It's at least as far as this sort of thing goes, kind of believable. You know, I, I could understand that a, a dilapidated mental state could um break out in something like this happening. It's, it is not out with the bounds of reality. But that makes it a sort of a film that kind of lives within its own internal logic well enough, and that's fine. That's good. That's a good thing. But it didn't really make it particularly affecting or all that interesting in the totality of it. Uh, it is fine. I didn't think it outstayed its welcome all that much. I was interested enough in the characters and where they were going uh, with it to stay with it for that time. 
ultimately I was hoping for or expecting some sort of zig where it could have zagged and it was just zags all the way. Um, you know, you, you know pretty much what this is going to happen as soon as the kind of first, um, the first hints of the kind of breakdown of the the central character appears. So, in that regard, it's a little disappointing. I was hoping it would uh, challenge me a bit more. Instead, it's it's just got something that is, you know, adequate. It's a, it is an adequate film, and it's very difficult to recommend it. I think, again. Like yourself, we we don't like horror films around here, so you know, take what we're saying with a pinch of salt. Uh, maybe if you're you know a horror aficionado, you may get more out of it. You may get less out of it. I don't know. <laughs> um, all I can say is that from someone who's not particularly interested in horror films, this one didn't make me angry, and it didn't make me want to leave and stop watching at any point. Um, from where I'm sitting, that makes it quite good, but I appreciate <laughs> that other people may have different uh, standards from which they're judging these kind of things. Um, it's certainly a contender for best horror film I've seen this year, because as far as I can remember, it's the only horror film I've seen this year, and uh, it's probably the only one that I will. Uh, yeah, it, it is okay it's sort of interesting in the cinematic side side of things. If you're a, you know, I, I guess particularly if you're a, a either a horror fan or you just remember the kind of whole video nasty um, d- debates, if you like, which we were, I guess we were kind of at the tail end of. I, I don't really remember. I, I knew this stuff, stuff happening conceptually, but I certainly never watched any of these films when I was growing up. And by the time I mm-hmm. was kind of culturally aware enough to be. An, an active participant in these kind of things. We'd already got past it. We were at the point where we were, um, you know, taking the piss out of this period of time. Like, hence the, the Baby White House experience and, and this kind of thing of being a, okay, a, a okay. co- comedy troops. So, yeah, um, I suppose that means if you're, what, 50-ish, then maybe this will evoke some kind of period, period of nostalgia for you for this kind of time if you were a horror fan and you were going through these kind of looking for under-the-table um copies of films and these kind of things. It's, it's an interesting year to kind of think about, but uh, particularly in this age where basically anything you want is a web search away. Thanks, Pirate Bay. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so obviously a very different time um, and it kind of evokes those feelings in some way, although I suspect the director is much younger than we are, so quite where those feelings of nostalgia are coming from, I'm not sure. But yeah, an interesting period, an interesting setting, a sort of an interesting concept, but ultimately it's not kind of resulted in a particularly interesting film. It's fine, but I can't imagine anyone, again, definitely not a general recommendation if you have a very specific interest in horror and that particular era, probably just a British filmmaker, a British uh, experience of horror films at that time. Kind of hard to say that it's straying much outside that lane. On a number of levels, I kind of appreciate what it's doing, what it's trying to do, but ultimately the, the, the end result is just a kind of average film that's difficult to really recommend anyone, anyone go out of the way to see. Yeah, um, it was... I mean, I didn't like, hate it in a way that I've like, hated so many other films for just being utterly terrible. Yeah. It's not offended my intelligence in any way. It, it felt <laughs> like it was um, sensible. No. Like you know, there are humans in it that might add to the way a human might act. Yes. Some of them, anyway. Um, yeah, it's. I, just, I really felt it dragged, and it's like it's the longest eighty-four minute film I've ever seen. I think, um, <laughs> and I think it's, it's another of these films that people seem to have been reading loads into, and I, I honestly just don't think it's there. Mm-hmm. Like about how it's all mixing with our psyche, and that these video nazis are making this happen and stuff. Like, really. And, 
her job is not going to mean she watches nothing but this stuff. She, she's just, she works with the BBFC. She'll be seeing all of the films. Yeah. It's not just this stuff. It's not like it's like she's in the video nasty section. That doesn't exist. Yeah. And yeah, she's clearly there. She's clearly disturbed before that. I mean, that, that, that strand is like, well, did she do something to her sister? What's the actual truth here? And her yeah. parents clearly don't want to talk about it. And that's actually the interesting stuff. And yeah. it doesn't get resolved. And I'm okay with that. It doesn't get resolved. It's fine. It doesn't need to be because that actually probably would not have been satisfying. Yeah. But it's kind of all the stuff around it. It's like, it's more just instead of like, oh, these films are saying this and stuff. Like, I don't think this film has a point of view. And I think it needs one. It's like, we're going to do this because it looks a bit like this. And we're going to do this because it looked a bit like this film. Like, okay, and? No, no, that's it. All right. Mm-hmm. And then had the, like, had the central character. I mean, I think Neve Algar's decent enough in the acting stakes. But I just don't think her character's all, all that interesting, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it was struggling to just hold my attention. And say there, there are moments, like, certainly, and again, it's not an expensive look. But when you've got all those, there's a really, like, the really strong blues and reds, which are very much like Suspiria, um, and they're in her flat, and then there's the, they're in the forest as well. Um, and it's a horror film set in the forest, actually, that I'm fine with. <laughs> it's not just because it was the cheap place to go, they actually did good things with it, with the lighting. And so there are some bits of visual flair there, but then the rest of it's just like, uh, I don't know, you're just saying, you're showing this thing because it looked like this thing, but you don't have anything to say, and... And I don't know, I think it thinks it's got more of a mystery than it does. Like, is this all really happening? Well, no, clearly it's not really happening. Is that not the point? No. People seem to be confused by this, but like, it's none of it's real. Um, and if you're in any doubt about like, whether it's happening or not, it's like, there are clues. Like, there, there, there's a murder that happens. Um, and the person's hair is grey before the murder and after the murder is bright ginger the same colour as her sister's hair so like I'm thinking that's probably a clue that this is all in her mind it's not one of those films like it's not like American Psycho you know when you get to the end and it's like oh none of this happened because uh, I don't think that's the point of it it's like it's, her mind's been fractured but kind of it seems a bit of a leap to get there because she seems okay and then there's a wee bit of a thing that she's reminded of her sister, then suddenly she goes mad within a day or two. I feel that kind of needed to be extended a bit, but um, I'm sure I had another point, but I've talked myself out of it by talking lots. Um, <laughs> so, sorry. Uh, yes, yeah, it just goes on too long, like me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, for such a short film, that's a weird thing. Yeah, so I was intrigued by this. I thought, Yo, here's one that's a bit different. Um, and I guess, like, I'm not angry at stupidity. You know, it's it's not Midsummer or Hereditary. Tony Collette's really good in Hereditary. Have you seen Hereditary? <laughs> yeah, it's. I, I just wouldn't recommend it though. I just I don't think it's interesting enough. Oh, there was actually just one thing I thought was quite interesting. One of the executive producers is Kim Newman. All right, so, yeah. um, so that that seemed very appropriate. Yeah, the the this director's a bit young for this, but the Kim Newman being involved, yeah, that makes a lot of yes. sense. He's he's definitely the go-to person for this kind of thing, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. 
Right, um, so that will wrap us up for today. If there's anything you would like to get in touch with us, then you can do. Uh, contact us on email at podcast at fudsonfilm.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash fudsonfilm or on the old Twitter site at fudsonfilm. But until next time, you should take care of yourself and each other. And I shall bid you goodbye, and I'm sure that Drew will do too. Hey, hey, what do you say? Chuchalabin dolale. You can run, you won't get far. Laban <laughs> in your capilla. I'm cutting that out. Don't. I started with I'm finishing with it. <laughs>